Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of being a community. Lord, that the gospel, your coming to us, pulls us together. This is part of your vision, part of your intention, that as you restore us to yourself, you would bind us together with others. And not just people that are just like us or think all the same things or like all the same stuff, but people who are have found themselves pulled into your orbit, who need you as much as we do, and who are loved by you as much as we are. So come, Holy Spirit, and open us up to yourself as we turn to your word. Would you give us ears to hear your voice, but also hearts to know that as we listen, we're listening together. Even if we came by ourselves today, even if we don't know many people in this room, we are a community today, uh, opening our hands to you, called by you. So come lead us to yourself, Lord. Amen. All right, this morning we are beginning into a new sermon series that will take us through to the beginning of September, the first Sunday in September. A series that flows naturally out of our All Things New series. And this morning I thought I should have called this new series the Some Things Old. Oh, that would have been such a great follow-up to All Things New. And that kind of fits, actually. Um, and in a way, this morning we're going to pick up on a lingering theme that I wanted to explore in our study on All Things New, our, our study on the gospel, sanctification, and everyday life in Christ. And so I want to invite us to begin by turning to a really unusual text in the Gospel of Luke as our starting point this morning. If you have a Bible, that's awesome. If you don't own a Bible, there are some in the bookshelf just outside the door, and you feel free to take one. It's a gift. You're not stealing. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 is the verse that will kick us off today. And I need a new prescription. I literally do. Uh, Cannot read close things. Luke 2.41, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Some of you, that's your favorite verse, right? No, it's not. It's not a well-known verse. It's not a well-loved verse. It doesn't seem that significant. It doesn't, there's no, nothing seemingly grand, uh, no grand saving action here, no big theological revelation it, see, it feels like just a framing verse for what's coming, right? It's a context verse. That's what I've always thought of it as, until recently. Recently, this verse has caught my attention as far more significant than I thought because of how this one verse highlights to us how Jesus' own life as a young person was shaped by a deep, ancient rhythm. A number of deep, ancient, communal rhythms, formative community practices, which practice over time, day after day, week after week, year after year, served to form the Jesus that we know and love and follow and want to become like. 
These weren't just arbitrary rhythms in his life like a weekly survivor party, though that is awesome, or laundry day or whatever, but Jesus' life as a young person and on into his adulthood was shaped by a number of God-given practices, rhythms, habits. Formative practices that we first encounter in the book of Exodus. This verse pulls us all the way back to Exodus, where God, having rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, invites his people, the Israelites, into a way of life together that over time, practicing community was intended to form and transform the people of God into a people who were like their God, right? That's what the Ten Commandments are all about and far more. Ten Commandments aren't just there at Saw something else in between. <laughs> the Ten Commandments were, were not, are not primarily about reigning in bad behavior or limiting anyone's freedom. That's not what they're about at all, but they're actually about teaching and forming a people who live in God's life-giving ways. That we would not just not lie or covet or abuse our neighbor or take what they have, but that we would be people who speak truth who can be trusted, who care about the sustenance of our neighbor as much as ourselves. That's the aim of the Ten Commandments. But it's not just the Ten Commandments. The chapter that follows, Exodus 21 and following, it's known as the Book of the Covenant, the next couple chapters, they describe a way of life together that God intends for his people, communal practices and rhythms that were intended to form the people of God to become like their God. Habits like daily manna collecting, weekly Sabbath worship and rest, three annual feasts, feasts that in time over the centuries would come to be placed in Jerusalem, which meant that most people down through the centuries, even today and in Jesus' day, have to do a pilgrimage of sorts to Jerusalem for these feasts, to and from Jerusalem three times a year. Super inconvenient, but deeply formative. Steeping their life in the revelation and the story of their God and what it meant for the, there to be, them to be God's people. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. I love that verse. These rhythms, built into their life by the command of God, once a day, once a week, three times a year. They are like, stop what they are doing and give their collective minds and imaginations, their bodies, their attention to what God has done and is doing and will do. Which, let it be said, that's what we're doing right here, right? That's what weekly Sunday church is about. Us putting down what we're doing and turning our collective attention to what God has done, is doing and will do and how that reorients our doing, our living, our being. God promised manna in the wilderness, so they went out and collected every day. I trust you, God. We're not gonna hoard. We're gonna take what, what you give us and trust you for tomorrow. God commanded his people who'd been slaves never could stop to rest one day a week and be defined by being the children of God, not by being just producers. One day a week, commanded to rest and worship together. 
And then three times a year, gather together for feasts to celebrate God's grand rescue of his people that he has and he will. And as we read the Gospels, which focus primarily on the adult life and ministry of Jesus, we see these rhythms still there. These weren't just childhood routines. Jesus didn't stop going to Jerusalem for the Passover when he came of age. That wasn't a Sunday school thing. That was God's wisdom for his life. All the way to the day of his death on the cross, right? Happened in Jerusalem during the feast. Jesus never moved past this deep practice in community. Okay, so what does this have to do with us today, with you? Well, a ton, really. Because as as many have said before, though we may become a Christian in a moment, or for some of us, maybe a season, it takes a lifetime to grow up in Christ. We may become, be born again in a moment, at a weekend, a Sunday, a camp experience, a an unexpected event, who knows? But it takes a lifetime to grow up in Christ. And yet as we live in a culture, as Aaron talked about a few weeks back, that craves and demands and expects everything to be instant. And we're so a part of that culture, right? Desperate for a shortcut, for a good hack, for a quick fix. And the pursuit of that fix, we so often reach for the latest the latest teacher or teaching, the latest ideas, the latest neuroscience insights, the latest podcast or app or AI or authors, offering fresh ideas and great hacks and promising dramatic and satisfying results in the next four days, right? I've been addressing a health issue with my shoulder for the last six months um, from a longboarding accident in the past and a couple car accidents. And I started playing, I was playing guitar one day, one night in October, and I just felt this crazy pain back here. And I was scared. I'm 45. I want to play guitar for the rest of my life. I want to be healthy. So I started doing some things and doing some things. And now I own a Bowflex and I work out in my garage. I do this stuff. And, I'm, and I watch CrossFit videos. And it's amazing how many videos pop up that promise, that show a guy who's like, a little bit lean or maybe not very lean, who now is like wicked lean, like Instagram lean. And it's, and, and it, it's like, here's the, the, the hook is, you know, four steps or 10 days or my quick, it seemed effortless endeavor. We love that stuff, right? We're looking for it. It's clickbait because that's what we want. And we want that in our life with God. We want that in our relationships. We want that in our community. We want that in joining a church. Give me the quick, easy pathway to amazing places of fun and intimacy, right? This is so not how it happens. Sorry, guys. <laughs> New people. <laughs> and into that ache for the quick, the latest, the quick, Jesus walks into our lives and invites us to learn and choose and follow him on a long and ancient path. Maybe that's where I could have put the title, Some Things Old. And my mind runs to God's word through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel in a time of great upheaval, kind of like today, 
Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says, stand at the crossroads, this is God speaking, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk it and you will find rest for your souls. And some of you, your mind has run instantly to Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah six sixteen. in that, to a world desperate for quick fixes and to the part of us that feels wired for the same, Jesus says, come. Come follow me. Come choose and learn and walk an ancient path with me, with my church. And with that, I do need to say, despite all the ways that life often seems so different with every passing generation, and it does in ways, right? If I were preaching this same message 20 years ago, I couldn't reference AI. I don't even know if I'd reference apps. That's so hack. I don't know. You knew that word was. It was. We didn't use the word hack. Despite all the ways that life often seems so different with every passing generation, the journey of discipleship does not actually change that much because God doesn't change. And we don't actually change that much, though our ideas do. Which means the task before us as followers of Jesus in this moment and in any moment isn't first and foremost to forge a new trail through uncharted territory, but to clasp our hands with Jesus and those who followed him before us and those who are following him today and to learn and choose and walk an ancient and well-worn path, a path from death to life, from the oppression of idolatry to the freedom of true worship, from alienation to embrace, from life with ourselves at the center to life with God at the center. And one such ancient and well-worn path that Jesus himself knew intimately is found in the book, in the midst of the book of Psalms, in a collection of 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. It's, it's Psalm 120 through 134. If you have a Bible, crack it open, or even your app, your Bible app, it's great to, to flip to it because um, I want you to notice some things. This collection of psalms functions like a hymn book or we might say a pilgrimage playlist for weary and and faithful and weary Israelites traveling the long road to Jerusalem for the feasts, exactly as Jesus did every year. This wasn't just a necessary journey, but along that journey, the people of God took these psalms and they read, recited, sung these psalms along the journey. Jesus did this first with his friends and his, his parents and his family friends in his childhood and then in his adult years with his followers. Imagine Jesus, 12 years old, Luke 2, 12-ish, traveling with his parents up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. But it's not just his parents. As we read the Luke 2 text, we're told on the way back home, they were with others, other families and friends. So there's a whole community coming from wherever it is that they live, Nazareth, coming together on their way up to Jerusalem for the feast, singing the Psalms of Ascent together as they go. I love how the New Living Translation, I don't typically use that translation, 
But it makes this explicit by paraphrasing the postscript. So in most of our Bibles, if you have an NIV or an ESV or a NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, it probably says a song of ascents in front of each one. In the New Living Translation, it says a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. I love how they just made it really obvious. That's what this is. But that said, these are more than just a songbook, a hymn book, a playlist to be sung or enjoyed along the way. They're also something of a roadmap for disciples. A roadmap, each psalm guiding us in some vital leg of the journey that we all must take. Each psalm is an ascent in itself. Another vital step in the journey. And one of the clues for this is that if you look at the postscript, if you can read it, the postscript isn't a song of ascent, but a song of ascents. Meaning multiple ascents. Because it's not just the journey to Jerusalem that is this upward walk, though it is. But each step, each psalm is a step in the discipleship journey of every follower of Jesus. The journey of confession, that is an ascent itself. The journey of remembrance, the journey of asking for help, and more and more. Each that we are invited and encouraged to face together. It's one of the obvious implications of these Psalms being included in the book of Psalms. These are not fragments of ancient diaries that have been found and put together, and we're reading them today. These are prayers written for the community of God's people, which is good news. That the life that Jesus calls us to, the long journey we are called to walk, does not need to be one that we face alone. And we're encouraged, we're invited to walk together, to learn together, to struggle together, to stumble together, to get back up together, to celebrate, to grow together. Arm in arm with Jesus, but not just Jesus, but Jesus' people, down through the centuries and today. Okay, last word of introduction to this series. We're titling the series, as you can see, Steadfast Songs. Because the Christian life is not, I think I've already hopefully making this really clear, the Christian life is not a quick fix. It is not a momentary interest, a fleeting fixation, a flash in the pan. It is what Eugene Peterson, quoting Friedrich Nietzsche, referred to as a long obedience in the same direction. Some of us know that line. It's become famous in the last 43 years since Eugene Peterson put out a book in 1980 called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, quoting Friedrich Nietzsche, who was not a Christian, German philosopher, outspoken atheist, and yet his words here ring with the wisdom of God. And I'll read his whole quote. He says, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. That's what relationships require. That's what uh, turning or recovering from addiction requires. That's what cultivating holy habits requires. That's what marriage requires. That's what parenting requires. That's what holy vocation, living into your calling requires, a long obedience in the same direction. 
Not just three days of pushing it hard, but a long obedience in the same direction. And so reflecting on this, the insight of Friedrich Nietzsche, Eugene Peterson, in his classic book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, published in 1980, has invited a few generations now to embrace the Psalms of Ascent as a well-worn path worth our sustained attention. And so for the next 15 Sundays, a whole team of us, Aaron and myself, and nine or 10 others from our congregation who are working together as a teaching team are gonna teach and lead us into one Psalm each week, all with the aim of helping fuel and cultivate a steadfast faith. Not a flash in the pan faith, but a steadfast faith. Learning through all the seasons to trust our steadfast, faithful God. So with that, we're gonna dive briefly into the first Psalm together. So Psalm 120, if you have it, flip there. So the first psalm in our study, I'm not going to do a whole sermon now. I'm just going to take the second half, okay? So Psalm 120, I hope this is a helpful example for the other um, steadfast song preachers that are up. Uh, I've given myself a brief amount of time. So this is both the first psalm in the study, but also it is the essential starting point. It's always weird when your wife walks out. I'm sorry, Janet. I shouldn't have said it. I know, I know. It's uh... <laughs> It's not, you know, just got a back issue and I shouldn't have said it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's, we need a little pause there, a little breathing space. So that's good. Sorry, babe. I'll apologize later again. All right, Psalm 120. Let me read it for us. I'm reading from the NIV. Um, I've looked at a multiple translations on this and they're all pretty much the same, which means there's not a lot of confusion about how to translate almost anything in this psalm. So the NIV is helpful. It says, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides you, deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals and the broom bush. Verse five, woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, like me, on first hearing, I suspect most of you have not instantly fallen in love with this psalm. It's just obvious. It totally connects. This is totally you. You're hoping I will weave this into our next child dedication liturgy. No. <laughs> Uh, save me, Lord, from lying lips. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech. On first reading, I'll admit, I wasn't sure what to make of this psalm. In truth, it's heavy, it's confusing, it's dark. The psalmist is in distress, in trouble, crying out to God. But there's also grace in this psalm. Though the psalmist ultimately says, woe to me, or woe is me, there, this is actually a beautiful revelation, a beautiful realization. It is good news, but we're not there yet, so I won't explain that until we're there. We need to start where the psalm starts. And that's what the psalm is saying, essentially, I'm in trouble. This is hard. I need help. God, I need you. Lord, save me. Does that sound like your prayers sometimes? I think it does. 
I'm in trouble, this is hard. I need help. I need you, God. Lord, save me. And notice that the source of distress is very specific. It's lying lips and deceitful tongues. Psalmist mentions this again in the next verse. And then in the final section, verses five to seven, the psalmist roots this in the particular place where he or she is located, that they are dwelling in Meshach, living in the tents of Kedar. Now, the important thing to know about Meshach and Kedar is that they are not the same place, nor are they near each other, which is not what I expected. I assumed Kedar was the people who lived in Meshach. Maybe you did too. They're not. They're both real historical people and places, uh, Meshach and the Kedarites, mentioned not only throughout the Old Testament in multiple places, but also in ancient extra-biblical historical records. But in light of the fact that Meshach and Kedar are both a long ways from Jerusalem, where this pilgrimage is leading, and actually a long ways from each other, the significance seems to be more symbolic, which I'm thankful for because it means this psalm is giving voice to not just those who have at some point in their life lived in Meshach or dwelt in the tents of Kedar, but anyone who's found themselves in a place where lying lips and deceitful tongues rule the day. And specifically, where the revelation and wisdom of God is not wanted or sought or honored. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues. I love how Ben Patterson, a wise pastor and author, explains this. He says, geographically, it is impossible to be in both Meshech and Kedar at the same time. Meshech was a hostile tribe located thousands of miles to the north of Israel in what is now southern Russia. Kedar was a Bedouin tribe that moved along Israel's borders southeast and had a reputation for violence and barbarism. All that to say, it is impossible to be in both places at once physically, but not spiritually. Again, upon first reading, I didn't find this psalm giving voice to my life. Sometimes you read a psalm, and within a line or two, you just feel like, oh my goodness, I needed this psalm. It just feels like it's speaking what my soul needed to say today, right? You feel like you're in a pit, and you open a psalm, and it says, Lord, I'm in a pit, <laughs> Or you feel you're at odds in a relationship and you open a psalm and it says, God, how long will they stand against me? It happens. This psalm doesn't feel like that. It didn't for me, especially at first. I didn't automatically describe, I wouldn't automatically describe lying lips as the chief threat in my life. But honestly, in the mystery of God's ways, the more I've sat with this psalm, as often happens when I study scripture, the more I've realized that this psalmist is actually onto something here that there is truth being spoken here, not just for me, but for all of us. The psalmist is, in fact, describing the primary battlefields of so much of our lives. Not the threat of physical assault, but of deceptive ideas that destroy people and communities, that divide, that oppress us, and turn us into oppressors. Deceptive ideas that destroy, divide, oppress and turn us into oppressors. Would you not agree that that is a fair description of so much of the chaos of the last few years of our world? Not as much the threat of physical assault, 
but of deceptive ideas that divide, destroy, crush, and oppress us and others. Which often is behind much of the violence in our world, where this psalm actually ends. The deceptive ideas that someone else or certain people aren't worth fighting for, are actually only worth fighting. That they need to shut up or shut down, cast away, be cast away or forced out. Or the deceptive idea that we alone, we alone see clearly. Everyone else on Facebook has no idea what they're talking about, but I know what's true, what's real, and I care rightly that we are the ones who care rightly, act justly, love mercy, as opposed to them, whoever them is, right? Those selfish idiots, right? <laughs> like, not usually what you say in a sermon, but that's how we think at times. It's not surprising that a psalm that begins with the distress of lies and deception ends with a threat of war. The last word in the psalm is war. And before we let our minds run to the usual suspects, and we probably all have them, those people, right? The usual suspects in the war of ideas in our cultural moment. We need to be honest, as the psalmist is in verse 5, that the threat of lies and deceptive ideas so often is alive, not just in others, but in us. Woe to me. Woe to me admits the psalmist. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. Why? Why woe to me? Because I am so often at home in Meshech and Kedar. Because there is something of Meshech and Kedar in me. There's something of Meshech and Kedar in all of us. And this isn't just sermonic flourish, if you were to read my journal from just yesterday, and you're not going to, uh, you would find me praying this prayer, writing this into my own page, not because I was preaching on it the next day, but because I, as I sat before God, as my day began yesterday, I found in my heart and mind and soul and fatigue a bunch of lies about God and about myself and what God expects of me and my limits and my need to ignore my limits. I don't know what lies are, what lies are that often reside in your heart and life. What motivates certain behaviors, certain pressures you feel, certain shame, certain whatever. I know for me, so often I find myself worn down with the lie that my calling is to be the breakwater for everyone. For my family and especially for Lambrick as a whole. That when life's waves come crashing, my role is to lie down and take the pounding so that others can experience the calm and not be overwhelmed. That is a lie that festers in me again and again and pulls me to say yes to more than I should and say no to less than I should. In truth, I have a photocopy of a photo of Fiskard Lifehouse at Fort Rod Hill pinned to a corkboard in my office right behind my door. You can see it there. A few years back, I was at the doctor's office in a season of exhaustion and found myself staring at this 
framed photo on the wall, gripped with how it seemed to be a metaphor of my life in that moment. And in that moment, I pictured myself laying down right here, pounding waves, calm. But here's the truth. Jesus is the breakwater, not me. I don't have to be the breakwater. Jesus is. I don't have to be or expect myself to be Lambrick's refuge. Jesus is. I don't have to be the strong tower. Jesus is. A bunch of years back, I was at a pastor's conference. Ken Shigematsu, pastor of 10th Avenue Church in Vancouver, said the simple line. I felt like he was reading my journal. He spoke to it. He said, I don't have to be the guy. I just have to be a son. I don't have to be the breakwater. I just have to trust the one who is for me and for you. And so I find myself writing into my journal, save me, Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues. In me and in the world and in me. So let's just pause here. What are the subtle or blinding lies that crush you or lead you to crush others? Where do you need to pray with the psalmist, save me, Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues? And if you don't know the answer, that is okay. Ask God to reveal it to you. God knows your heart better than you do. When I first read this psalm, I did not know it applied to me at all. And it totally does. It applies to all of us. And so I prayed about a week ago. And I invite you to pray, Lord, show me, show me the lies, the subtle or blinding lies that threaten my life in you and your life in me. Maybe he'll show it to you in an instant. Maybe it'll take a week. Maybe it'll take a season. I don't know, but it's worth it. Okay, so now let's come to the hope in this text. And it comes in two places, two parts of this psalm. First, I want to invite us to simply linger for a moment on how the psalmist speaks of God in this psalm. Note the psalmist speaks of and to God as Lord, all caps. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me, save me, Lord. If you're new to church, new to Jesus, new to the Bible, you will probably Uh, less familiar with modern Bible translation practice. The use of all caps is an editorial clue that this isn't the generic Hebrew word Adonai, translated Lord, meaning master, but this is the specific and personal name of God. The name that God reveals in Exodus, Yahweh. It's easy to gloss past this name because we encounter it at so many turns throughout the Old Testament. But we need to not. That's why actually when I see Lord, all caps, I say Yahweh to remind myself this isn't just Lord, Master, God, generic. This is Yahweh. This is a God whose name has a story. Whose name invites us to remember the story of God. The story of God, how God has been with and for the world and with and for his people. And this name relates explicitly to the, tr- the trouble that's named in this psalm. Think about this. The story of Israel is rooted in two epic Meshach and Kedar moments. First, Genesis 12. 
Abram, a resident of Haran, an idolater in a land of idolatry, all sorts of ideas about who God is and what it means to be human and how to live. And in that space, God shows up and calls him to follow him. The Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Exodus find themselves in Egypt, a land of idolatry with all sorts of oppressive ideas about God and what it means to be human and how to live. And into that place, God, Yahweh, shows up and calls them and invites them on a journey of transformation into the truth of God and his freedom worshiping him. All that to say, the, the fact that the psalmist speaks to and of God as Yahweh tells us the psalmist who is saying, save me from lying lips. The psalmist knows something of God's story and the psalmist knows something of Israel's story which gives the psalmist reason for hope. That God has met people in places like this before and God is able to meet us, to save us from lying lips and deceitful tongues and lead us on a journey with him to a place of true knowledge and freedom and worship and joy. This is a God who saves people who find themselves in Meshach and Kedar. Okay, with that, the other word of hope. So one is just Yahweh, just that name alone right there. Our hearts should, Whoa! when we see it, there's hope here. But second with that, the other word of hope comes in a surprising way. It comes in the form of the psalmist's confession, woe to me. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. There's a heaviness to this declaration of woe, right? You don't write that unless it's like, it's got to your, your, your deeps. There's a heaviness to this declaration of woe. But it needs to be said that sometimes woe is a beautiful word, a gospel word, a revelation, a God-given clarity that catalyzes needed change, that starts a needed journey, that brings a resolve, that sparks a new chapter, a new beginning, a pilgrimage of sorts with God into the unknown to us but not to God. This is the gift of reading and hearing Psalm 120 in the larger context of the Psalms of Ascent. And not just that, but as the essential starting point of the journey, because it is. That's what this Psalm is. It is a starting point. It is a catalyst into a journey that we will not experience unless we start with woe and hope that leads to a resolve to leave to leave where we are. The clarity and resolve that I cannot remain here any longer. As the psalmist says, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. Too long have I lived here, been stuck here, but I don't have to, we don't have to. Just naming the name Yahweh reminds me of that. Psalm 120 is an invitation to make a decision for the first time in our lives or maybe for the 400th time, because there's no arriving without leaving, without the resolve and the decision to leave. There are so many people, maybe all of us, who long for something different, something better, but who will never get there unless 
we leave, choose. Woe to me that I dwell here. Too long have I lived here. Enough, enough, enough. Maybe that's a place of a habit that is ruining us and our relationships and our soul. Maybe that's, well, what is it? What is it for you? Where do you feel the woe of Meshach in your life? Where is your heart and soul confessing today, too long have I lived among the tents of Kedar? Where is the red light of conviction flashing in your soul today? Because if it is, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. Woe at times is a gospel word, a gift of grace, an invitation from God to head out on a better path with God and his people. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace, but I don't have to. You don't have to because Yahweh, the Lord is calling and he knows how to lead us home to himself. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. Eugene Peterson distills it to this. Psalm 120 is a decision. The turning point marking the transition from a dreamy nostalgia for a better life to a rugged pilgrimage of discipleship faith. From complaining about how bad things are to pursuing all things good. Are you tired of complaining about how bad things are and ready to take God's hand and the hand of his people with him in the pursuit of all things good in and with Jesus? This is the invitation of this series of summer. This is the invitation of this psalm that gets us going. An invitation to follow Jesus together on an ancient and well-worn path that leads to life for us for the world. So this morning, Jesus says, as he says again and again, come, come. Not stay there and hope for things to be different, but come, follow me. It is time to get going. Yes? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Yahweh, We thank you for who you are, that where we are right now, as we find ourselves saying in different ways, save me from lying lips, maybe not knowing what the path forward will look like, we know as the psalm invites us that we cry out to a saving God, a God who has come again and again throughout the story of this world and met with people and communities of people. You have a track record, God, of being trustworthy, of being a God who speaks and reveals, who stands against deception and lies and the oppression it brings. And it is, your, it is who you are to speak truth and invite us into truth that sets us free through your word and in Jesus and together. So Lord, I give you my brothers and sisters right here where each of us has those places in our lives where 
It's time to get going. It's time to name it for what it is and take your hand. Holy Spirit, would you press us to the point of holy woe, that desperation to turn and say yes to you. We pray that for one another and we bow before you for that for ourselves, Lord. As we sing, Lord, continue to speak to us and lead us in response. Amen.